You are listening to Haftarah, the Shir series where we explore the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Haftarah. And here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg, we are actually in for yet another Haftarah mini-marathon, as you will see soon why. But this week's Parsha happens to be Parsha's Pinchas, and the Haftarah for Parsha's Pinchas comes to us from Sefer Malachim Aleph, Prakim Yud Ches and Yud Tes, 18 and 19 in Malachim Aleph. However, the Haftarah for Parsha's Pinchas is one of those rarely read Haftarahs. And that is because it is only read in a year when Shiv Asher takes place after the week of Parshas Penchas, which is not the case in most years, as it is not the case in this year either. So what Haftarah is read this Shabbos? So in a year like this year, when Shiv Asher is taking place before Parshas Penchas, Shiv Asher will be this Thursday, Be'ezer HaShem. So the Haftarah for Parshas Penchas is replaced with the Haftarah for none other than Parshas Matos, which as a Parsha, will not be read until next week with Parshas Masay. But as we're going to see in the coming weeks, the Haftaras are now going to conform not necessarily to the week's Parsha, but it's going to conform to a completely different value, which we will discuss as we will be having another mini-series very, very soon, plus a longer series, as you will see after that. But what that means is that here at Haftarah, we have to do at least two Haftarah Shirim, one to cover for the Haftarah for Parshas Pinchas, which again is rarely read, and then we have to do one to cover for the Haftarah for Parshas Matos, even though, once again, Matos as a Parsha won't be read until next week with Parshas Masay, but the Haftarah, which will be read this Shabbos, we would want to cover before that, and yet there's another Haftarah that I want to focus on. So after we cover the Haftarah for Parshas Pinchas, and before we cover the Haftarah for Parshas Matos, this week, in between, Be'ezra Hashem, we will be doing another Haftarah shir on another Haftarah that is going to be read this week, and that is the Haftarah of the Tainus Tzibor. A Haftarah for public fast days, which is read several times throughout the year, as it will be read this year, of course, for, um, for Shabbat Patamas. So all of that to come, Be'ezra Hashem, but first we look at the Haftarah for Parshas Pinchas as we dedicate this Shev, Lili Nishmas, Ini Marasi, Chai Rechel, Ba'os, David Tzvi, Arbeni Kavar, Meshkava, and Hashem should have an Aliyah. And let's take a look at Parshas Pinchas and its Haftarah. So the beginning of Parshas Pinchas celebrates Pinchas' act of heroism, which he zealously performed for Hashem. And in short, when the Bnei Israel allowed themselves to be seduced by the women of Moab, the women of Midian, into adopting Baal Peor as an idolatrous god. So Hashem proceeded to smite them with a deathly plague until one brave and passionate zealot of Hashem, a Kanai, a zealot for Hashem, which was Pinchas, he got up, he impaled one of the leading perpetrators and princes of Klal Yisrael, that was Zimri, and of course the Midianite princess Cosby. He impales them with a spear, and despite Pinchas' seemingly violent and controversial actions, as some might refer to it, Hashem openly affirms the, the correctness of Pinchas' deed, and he praises Pinchas, awarding him with eternal kahuna. He enters him into priesthood, and he grants him a bris shalom, a pact or a covenant of peace. So evidently, the deeper message of Hashem's appraisal of Pinchas is a response to the perhaps perceived irony in the story, that is, the public conception of peace and how Pinchas' particular actions would seemingly fly in the face of that conception. We think of peace as simply meaning to not fight, not to be confrontational, to find an easier way to do things without getting violent. 
we would likely suggest that any act of violence, certainly execution, as a rule, would interfere with the flow of peace. However, here we are, we are yet told that in God's book, literally in Hashem's book, at least under certain circumstances, things which are seemingly provocative, inflammatory, seemingly not peaceful to the public eye, can actually become a harbinger of peace. That means, for example, that even if the Bnei Israel were getting along with each other, and perhaps with their Gentile neighbors, when they are blatantly abandoning the will of Hashem, the peace is not enduring. Hence, there was a plague from Hashem, which completely disturbed the peace. And on the other hand, Pinchas, the only one who was zealous enough to act on Hashem's behalf, went ahead and killed a man in the open. And in response, Hashem basically says that, yes, Pinchas has brought peace. He's established peace. Apparently what that tells us is that true peace is apparently not defined or brought about by being soft and passive per se, or by being a pacifist, but rather by doing the right thing. It is the result of being zealous enough to fulfill Hashem's will, even if it means disturbing the perceived peace around you. We could stop there and walk away with an amazing life lesson. However, there is a problem. Because if all of the above is true, the peace, that, that, that peace is a result of zealotry for Hashem's will, then Hashem's implicit rebuke of Eliyahu Hanavi in a later generation, namely in our Haftarah, seems to be quite perplexing. And now we turn to our Haftarah, which once again comes to us from Malachim Aleph, Parakir Ches, beginning with Pasuk Mem Vav, 1846, and goes all the way till Yud Tes that's 1921, where we hear the story of Leah Hanavi, who, much like Pinchas, was a lone zealot for Hashem's sake, standing for justice and responding harshly to an idolatrous leaning B'nai Israel. As it happens, according to many, Eliyahu Hanavi was a, either a spiritual reincarnation of Pinchas, one tradition that goes as far as to say that Pinchas and Eliyahu were in fact the very same person. Take a look at the commentary of the Ralbag, Rashi de Bava Metziah, um, Daf, for the purpose of comparison, which our discussion is going to focus on, we can present Pinchas and Eliyahu as either two different individuals or even the same person. It doesn't really matter. Regardless of the actual biological or spiritual connections between Pinchas and Eliyahu, if one looks at their respective stories in Tanakh, the comparison, in any event, begs itself. As far as Eliyahu and Novi was concerned in the times of the Malachim, during the era of the wicked King Achav and Queen Izevel, the fad of the day was the worship of Baal, the supposed rain god. In response to the Bnei Israel's worship of Baal, Eliyahu displayed his measure of harsh justice when he supernaturally brought about a drought upon the land. He merely declared this drought in response, in combat, Against the rain god, he says, nope, there's going to be a drought. Despite the fact that Ahab and Izevel ordered the execution of all of the prophets of Hashem, Eliyahu would miraculously be protected from both the drought and execution so that he could challenge and embarrass the false prophets of Baal in a showdown of offerings. At the famous scene at Har HaKarmel, you bring your carbon to Baal, we bring our carbon to Hashem, we'll see who is accepted. However, after that scene, we find in our Haftarah that Hashem summoned Eliyahu Navi to speak to him 
at none other than Choriv, which is Har Sinai. And it is there where Hashem apparently assessed and responded to Eliyahu's actions. And in that vague passage, Hashem challenges Eliyahu Navi. He says, Malachapo, what is for you here? In other words, what are you doing here? I don't get it. What does that mean? Hashem called him there. Sounds like Hashem is pressing him on something. Basically asking him, what is your goal? Malachapo, what do you have here? Or what have we here? And Eliyahu responds that, what do you mean? Like, all I sought to do was to display zealotry for Hashem. He says, I am a Kanai for Hashem. I am a zealot for Hashem where no one else is brave enough to be. So Hashem responds very, very interestingly. First, he shows Eliyahu a strong wind, then an earthquake, and then a fire. And for each of these things that Eliyahu witnesses, the tempest, the storm, the earthquake, and then the fire, Hashem tells Eliyahu that he does not reside within that force. Nope, Hashem is not in the storm winds. Nope, Hashem is not in the earthquake. And then finally by the fire, the Navi says, Hashem is not in the fire. Finally, Hashem sounds off a called mamadaka, a stin-filled voice, which perhaps you're familiar with from Unasana Tokef from Yom Noraim Davening. Hashem sounds off this, this thin, still voice, this whisper. And then he asked Elio Anavi one more time, Malachapo, what do you have here? To which Elio responds with the same exact sentiment from before, that he is displaying zealotry for Hashem. He says, I don't get it. I am just a Kenai for your will, Hashem. I'm standing up for you. These people were serving Avodah and I am here to fight for you. Finally, Hashem instructs Eliyahu regarding his final biddings. He orders him to pass on the mantle to his disciple who would replace him as the leading prophet, and that is Elisha. Now, beyond the mysterious imagery and the general obscurity of this story, there seems to be an implied rebuke of Eliyahu Navi for his actions and or his mindset. After explaining that he was zealously standing up for Hashem's honor, Hashem put on a display of harsh forces and told him that his presence does not reside there. I am not in the fire. I'm not in the storm. Apparently, these forces represent the harsh measure of justice that Eliyahu was relating to the people. In the way in which Eliyahu was relating to Klai Israel at that time was what we would perhaps liken to storm winds, to an earthquake, to a fire, the hellfire and brimstone. Conversely, the soft voice, the called mamadaka, we might suggest represents the opposite of harshness, perhaps mercy and serenity. The peace, as we referred to it before, as, as we might think of in the public conception, where apparently, in the Navi testifies, that that's where Hashem does reside. Hashem says, that's where I am, I'm in the called mamadaka. But of course, when given another chance, and when asked the very same question again, Hashem says, Eliyahu, let's try this again, Malachapo. Eliyahu maintained his stance that he was right to stand up for God's honor. And perhaps, since Eliyahu did not get the message, Hashem revealed that his services would soon no longer be required. Apparently, then, it would seem like Eliyahu had done something wrong or had said something wrong. Apparently, his zealotry in response to the idolatry on Hashem's behalf was not correct. What, what Was he being too harsh? 
Right? And with this background information understood, we would have to wonder why our Sidra and its Haftarah seem to be sending us seemingly mixed messages. Right? And perhaps this is one of those Haftarahs that questions the assumptions of our Parsha almost. Right? Sometimes we've had that in the past where the Parsha seems to present one perspective and then it almost looks like the Haftarah is presenting a different perspective. We spoke about this for Parshas uh, Tzav, I believe, when it came to Karbonos. Right? Does Hashem want Karbonos? Does Hashem not want Karbonos? It almost seems like we're, have, we're, uh, we're encountering and confronting a similar question. Does Hashem want our zaltry? Are we supposed to aspire to emulate Pinchas? Right? Or is this something that we shouldn't do? So we have to figure out what, what, what is the message between our Parsha and our Haftarah? Why are Pinchas and the later Eliyahu's respective demonstrations of divine zealotry received differently by Hashem? We just finished saying how peace in God's book is apparently defined by zealotry for Hashem's feelings, as it were. Being attuned to Hashem's will and doing the right thing, even when it seems harsh and against the pervading society and society's pervading opinion, that that's the true pathway to peace. So the question is how far this particular definition of peace goes. Because apparently, it seems like Eliyahu Hanavi had gone a little too far. Right? But how do we know what's too far? Why then was it that Pinchas' zealotry for Hashem was correct, while Eliyahu's was not? And whom are we supposed to emulate? Why was Pinchas granted a covenant of peace while Eliyahu was rebuked and dismissed? What should be our takeaway after seeing both Parshas Pinchas and its Haftarah? I'll tell you a, a funny, funny story, actually, that um, relates to Parshas Pinchas. It actually, it was a, specifically a Shabbos of Parshas Pinchas. I used to work in Camp Hask, in camp for campers with special needs. And I remember one of the, one of the um, older campers was delivering a Devar Torah, Usually every Shabbos, there'll be some, one of the campers will deliver a Dvar Torah. And, it's, you know, as they have special needs, sometimes it's, it's very humorous or cute to see how they, how they deliver that Dvar Torah. And the person um, started, uh, started off by saying that Pinchas killed Zimri. And then he finished off the Dvar Torah by saying, and we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't kill people. And it was really cute and it was very funny because, yeah, he's right. Like, we, you know, in, in a general sense, we would say that we shouldn't kill people. Um, but that had me wondering, you know, Pinchas, according to the Torah, according to Hashem's speech, did the right thing. And the question is, well, what about us? Pinchas killed Zimri. And Rashi praises him for killing Zimri without having, having regard for who Zimri was. He didn't get any diplomatic immunity for being a leader of Kalal Yisrael. Right? Usually when it comes to Gedolim, we are a little bit more patient and we, we have more trust in, in the actions of Gedolim, even when they seem controversial. And we try not to challenge the Gedolim in our times, especially um, to have as much reverence as possible. And of course, that seems to be absent in Pinchas's actions against Zimri. So the question is, what about us? Like, what do we do? Pinchas killed Zimri. Do we, do we kill people? Is there a time where we should? Or to be zealous for Hashem? Do we emulate Pinchas? But I think there's uh, more to this question. All right, let's, let's consider Eliyahu Hanavi's actions. Did Eliyahu Hanavi actually go too far? Was he too harsh when he was dealing with the Bnei Israel? 
After all, they served idols, the greatest Avera that you can do. Just like they were when Pinchas entered the scene to kill Zimri. Or perhaps the only thing that's worse is Shvichas Domin, but idolatry is punishable by death. So this, this, is, this is execution, this is capital punishment. Right? Pinchas impaled a man and his mistress with a spear, and Eliyahu declared a drought, which God himself must have allowed nature to perform. Right? Eliyahu could not have made a drought just happen if not for Hashem allowing it. Moreover, Chazav noted in the Gemara and Sanhedrin on Kuv Gimel Medalef that the drought was an appropriate response to idol worship, as Hashem's Torah itself does say that if Bnei Israel serves Elohim Achirim, then the heavens would be closed. Velo Matar. We say it every single day. There's not going to be rain. We say it in Shaman in the, the parsha of Vehoya. So if you think about it, not only did Eliyahu necessarily act with God's assistance, but he acted in accordance with Hashem's explicit words in His Torah. So what does it mean if we want to suggest, or if it seems the Navi, our Haftar, is presenting it as though Eliyahu had gone too far, what does that mean that he went too far? How could there be a too far when we're talking about acting completely on Hashem's behalf and in accordance with his rules? Right? Pinchas as well. He, he consulted Moshe. He says, Moshe, what's the halacha here? And Moshe said, Kanoi Pogimbo, that Azela is allowed to kill someone who is Boel Aramis, who, is, who cohabits with a non-Jewish woman under these circumstances. Pinchas received the halachic permit. It was appropriate. He did it. And Eliyahu Anavi is following the rules of the Torah. The whole point, as we explained, when Hashem awarded Pinchas, is fending for Hashem's will regardless of the appearance of the harshness. So that leaves us with this question, what made Eliyahu's response so worthy of rebuke relative to Pinchas's actions? Was Eliyahu Hanavi not correct? So before answering these questions, we have to understand first that the assumptions of the last question really are correct. That Eliyahu was completely acting in accordance with Hashem's assistance and the letter of the law. According to the Shuras Hadin, absolutely. And of course, what that means is that in the plain sense, Eliyahu Navi was correct, just as Pinchas was. We might even suggest that these facts would explain why Eliyahu was not even explicitly punished, but was rather, as we explained, merely rebuked in a coded sort of fashion. Right? Hashem just says, okay, like, you know, your, your, your Talmud is going to succeed you, which was hopefully expected. Hashem, Hashem doesn't patch Eliyahu for what he does. But there is a veiled, implied rebuke. But the question then is where exactly Eliyahu faltered, if anywhere, and what the measure of rebuke he received was for. Well, what, what, what should Eliyahu have done alternatively? So again, from a simple standpoint, both Pinchas and Eliyahu had the letter of the law on their side. Rashi, once again, cites the Medrash Tanchuma, which explains how Pinchas was halachically authorized to volunteer the execution of Zimri for his conjugal relations with the Gentile Kuzbi due to the principle of Kanoi and Pogimbo, even outside a court setting. Um, a zealot is allowed to confront and, and kill the, the perpetrator. And we already explained Eliyahu's drought idea was completely prescribed by the Torah. So both are personally... Uh, offended for Hashem by the despicable acts of, of Hashem's people, and both of them acted in accordance with the Torah. So the question is, what was different? If Pinchas was praised and granted peace before, what mistake did his reincarnation make? 
So when looking at the obvious parallels between Pinchas and Eliyahu's zealousness, we have to consider maybe a few important factors that might differentiate them. And these factors may or may not answer the question. I'll just tell you from the outset. Because this question, I don't believe, is a, is, a, is a simple question, nor do I believe there's a simple answer to it. But we may consider one difference is perhaps the context of their situations. We might also consider the extent, maybe, of the zealous acts in each story. And if not for context or extent, we might additionally perhaps consider the differences between the intention or the direction of the zealousness between Pinchas and Arparsha and Eliyahu in, in our Haftarah. In other words, to what end the zealousness was being displayed? So what do I mean by all these things? And again, I, I don't think there's a simple answer. But let's, let's, let's look at the context of the two stories. As far as context goes, is it at all possible that the context for the zealousness in either situation was different, perhaps appropriate in one and inappropriate in the other? So both scenes included Avodazara, idolatry. But if you think about the timing of these two idolatrous occurrences, one was in the era of the Midbar, and the other is in the era of the Malachim. Now, does that make a difference? Is the idolatry any less bad? So the answer to that question is no, it's definitely not less bad. But perhaps the generation of the Midbar should have known better, especially considering that until that point they had been clean of idolatry for the better part of 40 years. However, in the times of Ahav, the nation had already, be, had already been reintroduced again and again to Abu Dazara. This is not to say that they weren't culpable. However, we are now talking about a nation who was following the lead of the acting king at the time. And perhaps Eliyahu and Avi's resorting to death by drought could be considered a little bit extreme. Because although we might argue that the Torah already promised a drought, but until Eliyahu and Avi had made it so, albeit with Hashem's help, right, the tzaddik was gozer, Hashem was makayim, the tzaddik decreed it, and then Hashem fulfilled it. But notice how, until Eliyahu stepped on the scene, Hashem himself had not decided on the drought. Was Hashem perhaps originally considering having more patience for a spiritually weaker generation. Perhaps, but of course, Eliyahu had already been decided. Now again, when we talk about context, usually, usually, when it comes to people not following the refs on Hashem, the whole point of Pinchas's uh, heroism was that he didn't say, hey, let, let's, let's put Zimri's act into context. right? He, he called Zimri out and, and killed him on the spot. Because he ignored the context. He ignored the fact that, that Zimri was, 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 a, was perhaps formerly a tzaddik and a great leader of Kalah Israel. He ignored that. He ignored all of that. What will people say? And he killed Zimri appropriately. Meaning, it seems the very act of zealotry for Hashem, the whole point is to, to say, hey, let's stop trying to editorialize and politicize and contextualize things when the facts on the ground are such. And yet, maybe even at the same time, maybe there is a bigger picture that you also have to think about. Meaning, yes, at a certain point, you have to say, okay, context, shmontext, you know, and, 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 and say this is what it is. 
but maybe there is still a difference between context and maybe maybe there is a larger picture at the same time. If you can juggle those two things at the same time, saying context doesn't matter and context matters, if that makes sense. Now, right, in, in a similar vein, we can consider how in Pinchas' situation, it was really only after a plague had ensued that Pinchas actually responded to the sins that he witnessed and in turn saved the nation. I th- think about that. There was a, there, there, the Klaishal started sinning. There was a plague. Pinchas sees Zimri, Pinchas acts. So the context, the setting certainly was that they, it was on a downward spiral for Klaishal. They were suffering. On the other hand, in Eliyahu Navi's situation, it's interesting that Hashem himself had not yet targeted Klai Israel. In fact, Eliyahu was the target, or, or the targeter. Eliyahu was the perpetrator of the response, all on his own. He volunteered it, and Hashem merely followed Eliyahu's lead. So Pinchas sees a plague and says, I better do something. Or maybe, again, you can say, oh, he saw the sin and said, I better do something. But it was at a time when a plague was affecting Klai Israel for their Avera, in this context of Eliyahu, there was, no, there was no real response. There was no divine response to it. Eliyahu decided to instigate the divine response. Almost as though maybe Eliyahu was playing the Dayan, he was playing the judge. Now, he was a Navi, so there's a place for that. But you know, maybe, maybe there's a difference between rebuke of the people and playing around with nature. Now we consider perhaps the extent of the two zealous acts. We spoke about context. Let's talk about the extent. Yes, Pinchas's act of impaling Zimri was a more direct action. And he killed one really big person. However, Eliyahu's act was considerably more far-reaching. His drought would kill not merely two people, but a portion of the masses. He was targeting all of Klaistral, if you think about it. Only few would survive the drought. In fact, Eliyahu Hanavi was one of the people that would survive. But it seemed that at that time, everyone else was dying. Meaning Eliyahu said, Whoa, an Avera, Klaistral, a mass Avera? Okay, let's attack, you know, all of Klaistral. And maybe that is going too far. Maybe we could appreciate that um, even more so than the context, the extent that Eliyahu might have been going too far. Now, with these two factors explained, we can now turn to that final factor. So we spoke about context, we spoke about extent. Now let's talk about the final factor of intention or direction of the zealous acts. Now, it's not always easy to pin down an individual's intention, a person's personal kavanos, especially if the intentions are not specified, as in Pinchas' situation. That's why we need, um, we, you know, we need information such as context or extent to help fill in those blanks. So in this light, Pinchas' act seems to have been in part for the sake of atoning for Bnei Israel, As Hashem testifies, it did. He did not merely seek to punish the perpetrators, but indeed there were many perpetrators that he did not target. And there was already a plague killing out those perpetrators, which perhaps might have hit Zimri as well. That information, paired with Hashem's praise of Pinchas, should lead us to the conclusion that there was apparently a peaceful end, which Pinchas sought out through his momentary act of violence. So what about Eliyahu and Avi's intentions? Sure, his context might have had more room for patience and perhaps the extent of his zealous act was very far-reaching. But certainly his intention was exactly as he said it, to avenge Hashem's honor, just like Pinchas' intentions were. So how can the intentions be any purer or more just? And I believe the answer to that question is actually yes, of course, Eliyahu was 
completely justified according to the letter of the law. And again, that is why Hashem ultimately complied. Eliyahu declared a drought and Hashem said, this is technically appropriate. And again, Eliyahu Navi was not punished, at least not explicitly. That's why Hashem's rebuke of Eliyahu was only implied through subtle imagery. But sometimes, even being 100% correct according to the letter of the law, and having your heart in the right place as well to act on behalf of Hashem, can sometimes be against Hashem's even higher rutzon, his higher hopes to act beyond the letter of the law, against Hashem's hopes that these spiritual leaders consider the welfare of his children. And this is true in uh, this is true in Dine Mamanus as well in financial law, right? When it comes to uh, Dayanus, to Dine Torah, when uh, when uh, you know in a Jewish lawsuit, so usually there are, there are two classes of judgment. You can say let's go let's go according to Shiras Hadin, pure justice, who should win the case, and yet there's something called Pshara, something called compromise which is what Dayanim try to do, which is what the Torah, which is what Chazal say we're supposed to try to do. Do what is straight in Hashem's eyes. Yes, Hashem's children sinned. And yes, there are they, they were culpable. And yes, anyone who witnessed the betrayal against Hashem should be infuriated on Hashem's behalf. But even all measures of retribution, even the harshest, have to be intended and directed not merely with Hashem's honor in mind, but perhaps with the intention, the greatest love and concern for Hashem's children, whom he cares more about than his own honor. Right? And that doesn't mean that we don't hold people responsible. But it does mean that when we are dishing out din, we have to do it with the understanding of Hashem's love for Kal Yisrael. And that has to be considered when we make a decision. Because if we're going to target all of Klai Yisrael for the sins of even the masses, but it's not all. If Hashem does it, that's one thing. If we do it, if, 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 we, if we instigate that divine retribution, that's something else. If we are not saying, Hashem, why can't there be a pshara? Like Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai, the, the, the scene of the Chaita Egel, something we spoke about in the archives. If you go find the Shiorim on Machzer Manager, we spoke about the paragraph of Unasana Tokef. There's the, the Shofar Godal Yitaka and the Kaldama Madaka on the other hand. Right? The, the Shofar of Har Sinai, of Moshe Rabbeinu, when Hashem says, hey, let's do strict justice, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem, can we ease it up? Erase my name if you won't. And yet, on the other hand, the Kultum Madaka. Eliyahu Navi says, yeah, let's wipe them out. I'm being zealous for you. And Hashem says, one second, do, do you hear the whisper? Because that's where I am, that's where I want to be. Right? Moshe on the one hand, Eliyahu on the other. Perhaps Pinchas on the one hand, and Eliyahu on the other. And coming back to Pinchas, even while sacrificing the public conception of peace for Hashem's honor, Pinchas did not completely lose hope in achieving peace for the Bnei Israel. He acted with justice, but apparently yearned for the Bnei Israel's peace. He acted harshly, seemingly spontaneously and passionately, yet with the higher goal in mind. And this end of love and mercy, it would seem that this same love and mercy, is, it's, it's certainly not visible when we look at Eliyahu's act. Whether he was a reincarnation of Pinchas or even Pinchas himself, Eliyahu had, in some sense, seemingly taken that fiery passion and zeal for Hashem 
a little bit too far. Not past the letter of the law, of course, but past the higher ideal. He got so caught up in Hashem's honor, perhaps appropriately, the emotion was correct, but he seemingly looked away from Hashem's unending love for the Bnei Israel. If that's the case, then to what end was Eliyahu Anavi acting zealously on Hashem's behalf, other than to the end of the Bnei Israel as a people? Right? We have to ask ourselves, is that what Hashem wants? Right? Like, when we are acting on Hashem's behalf, when we are zealous for Hashem, we also have to ask the question, I'm doing this for Hashem, how do you think Hashem wants me to do this? Right? That's an important thing. Right? So, for example, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're, you know, you have to know, there are times where you do have to know your place. Let's say you're, you're a child, right? And there are adults that are talking in shul. And you see this, right? Like, let's, let's say you're 12, you're 13 years old. So really, we all have responsibility to, to correct each other's mistakes. But how should the child do it? Should the child start yelling at the people saying that's disgusting, that's chutzpah, that you're, that, that you're talking during, you know, that you're, ta- you're talking in shul, disturbing other people's davening, disturbing your own davening? Um, well, you know, like, so is the child right? The child might be right. But is the child also perhaps going a little too far? And I'm just using that just just to to to, to create a muscle of sorts, not, not necessarily a perfect muscle, but just just to understand that you have to ask when you're doing it on Hashem's behalf. How do you think Hashem wants you to do it on Hashem's behalf? Now, at the end of the day, as upsetting as a lot of this might sound, I don't believe that all hope is lost, right? Because if one thinks about it, although in his human flesh lifetime, Eliyahu Navi was a harsh prosecutor of the Bnei Israel. Very interestingly enough, in Eliyahu Navi's angelic afterlife, we know that Eliyahu would improve in this particular Nakuda because he would roam the world acting as the great defender of Kalah Israel, as it is depicted so often in Chazal. And the Zohar teaches something to that effect that, that Eliyahu Navi comes to sort of rectify in, in, in his afterlife, if we can call it that. Which means that eventually Eliyahu redirected himself to his Pinchas roots and he refocused his higher his his, his um, you know um, his Hashem centered passion on Hashem's higher will. And I believe it is with this same recentered zeal for Hashem that Eliyahu Navi will continue to mercifully fend for us. And it is why Eliyahu is going to be not the one who's going to call for the wiping out of Yisrael by any means, but he's going to be the one that's going to usher in Mashiach speedily in our days, when we earn, or at least are treated to our final geula. So we shall be zochah to not only zealously empathize with Hashem and to act on His behalf, but to also always do so with the loving and peaceful intentions for all of Hashem's children. And Hashem should send us, whether He's Pinchas or Eliyahu Anavi, whoever He is, to our aid with the Gula, as He does Asher Mashiach, As always, if you enjoyed this year and others liked it on the podcast and want to partner with us with, with the sponsorship, or for questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group, where you will find links to be uploaded Shear or links to Shearim that I repost due to their relevance, then all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data, then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. But until next time, stay tuned for Haftar Shearim, for Tainus Tzibor, and for Parshas Matos. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and thank you for joining us here at the Database.